Welcome to the Defending Freedom Podcast. My name is Kenya Alou. I'm a mother, wife, and freedom-loving American. If you believe America is worth fighting for, you've arrived at the right place. I believe America's best years are ahead of us, and that's why this podcast was built for you. Hello, and welcome to the Defending Freedom Podcast. This is Kenya Alou, your host, and I am very excited today to have such a distinguished guest on our show. We have Ron Vitello, who was the former chief of the U.S. Border Patrol. He was acting deputy commissioner of U.S. Customs and Border Patrol and former acting director of ICE during the Trump administration. And I cannot believe he's on the Defending Freedom podcast. (laughs) Kenya, it's great to be with you. Thanks for having me on. Thank you so much. Um, I'm very excited to hear a little bit about your background and um, you know where how you grew up and what made you decide to enter the line of service that you entered and kind of take it from there. Very good. So I, I grew up just uh, in the basically in the suburbs outside of Chicago. Um, I have an immigrant story background, like most Americans. My mom was a refugee from World War II. Uh, her family was from Lithuania. She, they came when she was a, a small child. Uh, my dad's first generation Italian American. Um, he had a big family that said that, and that at some point they both settled in the Chicago area. Um, that's where they met and got married and, and, and raised a family. I have a brother and, and a sister. Um, we stayed in, in the Chicago area until I was about 15 years old. And then we moved to San Diego, California for my dad's job. And living near the border in San Diego and, and having an interest in serving in law enforcement, um, I got recruited and gravitated toward service in the Border Patrol. Uh, started my career in 1985, um, moved all over the country. Well, I was married in uh, 1988 and my wife and my children followed me around my entire career. We were on the, on the southern border in, in a number of places, um, had some staff. I did some staff work when we had a regional office. I was at the headquarters uh, twice in my career. Um, served in Arizona, uh, in Vermont on the northern border, and, uh, and, and was at the, uh, as the Department of Homeland Security during uh, the merger when it was brand new. Um, and so I had a great career. My parents taught me the value of hard work. Um, and the Border Patrol, the culture of the Border Patrol is very can-do. Um, and it, 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 in general terms, it's a very hardworking organization. And I, and, uh, I really enjoyed my time with it. Um, I got to do some exciting things near the end of my career, even, even though it was in the Washington area, um, was the acting deputy commissioner for quite a while, and then uh, was asked by the, uh, the department and the White House uh, to serve as acting ICE director and were, was seeking the nomination to be the, the uh, confirmed director. Um, ran out of time <laughs> uh, for a couple of reasons, uh, and I retired in 2019. Uh, I now work for Axon. Uh, they're the company that you know that makes tasers and body-worn cameras. And so I did some consulting on my own, uh, was working with them as a client and uh, really have gravitated again toward that mission because they're all in on supporting law enforcement with de-escalation tools, with training, with software, and then the devices that we all know about. Body-worn cameras are ubiquitous amongst law enforcement and the federal space, it's, it's sort of a new market for them. Um, they've been in, the, in, in federal uh, sales or you know, selling to feds uh, for quite a while, but now uh, there's an expansion underway, uh, again, because, you know, over many years while I was there and, and continuing, um, the Border Patrol and CBP wants to do better on use of force, transparency, and accountability. And I get to help them, you know, sort of from the sidelines. You know, I'm not an operator anymore, but um, I get to help 
uh, my former colleagues and, and give them the tools uh, and the training and the support that they need. The company has been very good about not only helping, uh, you know, in the federal space, but all across state and local and even internationally. Um, th these, these products are, are saving lives every single day. And so I'm really proud to be part of a, a, another big team um, that helps protect people. Awesome. So that's like, um, and forgive me, this is not my language um, for the audience and for myself. You're talking about ways to, when you say de-escalation, ways to prevent it from getting to the point where a gun is shot. Right, right. So the taser has the, uh, the technology to incapacitate people for a short amount of time um, so that, that officers have an alternative to hands-on or use of force in other ways, including uh, lethal force. Um, the, the Taser has saved, you know, in, in the history of the company, they've been around for quite a while. In the history of the company, they've saved over 400,000 people who, you know, might, without that tool, you know, officers and agents would have to use other methods. And so, right. um, and it's not just the device itself. Or it, it comes with lots of training. Um, agents and officers have to use really good judgment. And then we support that training um, with uh, virtual technologies, uh, with software that helps manage the tools. Um, and then, like I said, the, the company is, is very attuned to the needs of law enforcement mm -hmm. um, and, and is always looking to give them better tools and better information. And, and the company is committed. Um, you know, the, the, the CEO is, uh, uh, all, the whole C-suite is, is committed to, uh, to making the taser just as reliable as any firearm that an agent or an officer would, would carry. Um, we just had a case here in, in our area, Dallas, where a police officer thought she was pulling her taser, but she pulled her weapon and the man died. Yeah, that's, um, that's, it's very unfortunate. Um, she's, yeah. Anyway, that's not what this, just a side note. <laughs> um, okay. You mentioned that you were seeking uh, to be confirmed for that confirmed position. And I know you've been asked about this before. That didn't happen. It did not. So do you know why it didn't happen? Like what, what happened there? I really don't know. Um, it was, it was, a, it was a bit of a surprise to me, everything on the, you know, I'd never been through anything like that. You know, I, I've watched, um, commissioners get confirmed. I, you know, you see on, you know, some of the hearings and on television, I wasn't necessarily a part of that before. It was a very unique situation for me, having been a career employee for over 33 years at the time. Um, you know, when I was asked by the white house, how do you, you know, on what terms do you want to serve as the acting director? Um, and one of those choices I made was to seek the nomination, you know, that the president was going to put forward. He did that. Um, and I had the responsibility to manage, run and lead the agency as well as, you know, get confirmed. And, you know, so there was a little bit of bumps along the way. Um, it got into the like sort of the final hour, maybe the eighth or ninth inning. Um, we, I got out of committee. Um, I got a referral from the Justice, uh, the Judiciary Committee out of the Senate. So Homeland Security, uh, Ron Johnson, uh, great man, helped me get through his committee, which is the committee jurisdiction. Um, we got a favorable vote out of that committee, got a concurrent referral out of the Judiciary Committee. Um, and then, you know, the, somebody at the White House, including the president, decided that they needed to go in a different direction, and uh, they pulled the nomination. And you know, I contemplated what that meant for me. I certainly had career status as an employee in the government and DHS, um, but I had always had in my mind that I was going to retire around that time of my life, 55 years old. 
Um, and so I kind of did the math and said, yeah, I, you know, I felt like uh, ICE needed a confirmed leader. I thought they could get there quicker. It, apparently, obviously, they never did. Um, but I wanted to give that my the leadership cadre that I worked with at ICE uh, another chance, if you will, at it. And so um, I submitted my paperwork and, and became a private citizen. Wow. Okay. All right. So after 34, 35 years, uh, 34, after, years. 34 years, you became a private citizen. Is what kind of what is that transition like? I was interesting. I told people in the in the very early days, you know, because I was, you know, I was at the I was at the leadership level for the last several years of my career. Um, and so lots of people were coming to me with big problems. You know, look like when you're that at the top of the pyramid, they don't bring you the small stuff. They bring you stuff that, you know, is monumental. And and so having been in those conversations and having been able to make those decisions and, you know, seek advice and 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 make plans and implementations, um, that first couple of weeks, I was like, okay, why isn't anybody calling me? Why isn't my inbox filled? You know, why, you know, the, the, the pace of, you know, my, my non-life life, you know, my work life, you know, came to a halt essentially. Um, so that took a little getting used to, maybe a week or so. Um, but then I started, you know, looking for other opportunities and trying to help people um, navigate the department. And so consulting is something that, you know, leadership ends up doing, uh, not always, but it was something that was, it, it intrigued me. Um, and so I started down that path. I formed my own LLC, uh, started acquiring clients that, you know, who had missions I believed in that were, some were already supporting CVP and the department and some were looking to. And so I, I tried to help them do that. And so it, it was very interesting. I, I learned how to sort of navigate this new chapter in my life. Uh, again, great support from my family. And uh, it, it really worked out. You know, I did it almost a year. Uh, and then Axon made me an offer to come on as a permanent employee. And again, I, I believed in what they're doing. I believe in what they're doing. Um, and I get to help on the implementation side at, at, in places like the Border Patrol and ICE. Um, and so it was, it was a natural fit for a number of reasons, and I've really enjoyed it. Um, tell me about what you, I wanna know the things that you saw on the border 34 years ago, and the things that you have, you know, through your career, um, what did you see when you first started and did that evolve or change or is it the same? No, it's, it's very different. I, I think the baseline work, you know, like being present on the border, you know, having the equipment and the tools and the training and the intelligence, that's very similar to, to the way it is now. The, the, the work of an agent, I'm seeing one of the most difficult things that they have to encounter is like, when you're out in the middle of nowhere in the desert or along the Rio Grande River at night and the sensor goes off and you're at one end of the trail and the borders, uh, you know, just south of where you are, when people walk up that trail, agents have no idea what they're going to encounter until they're face to face with that person. Now, there's technology that can help them. There's intelligence that can inform their deployments. But at the end of the day, they've got to go face to face with some threat that's coming, you know, toward them. Uh, so that part of the job is very similar. Um, when I started in 1985, um, we weren't as capable as we are now. Um, we had a, you know, the culture of the Border Patrol, as I said earlier, uh, was very can do. So we really cared about how effective we were. Um, how, how we could learn things, how we could protect our communities, protect the border and be smarter and better and safer at doing it. But really outside of the border communities, it wasn't really on you know, the national radar uh, until 9-11. Um, so I had the, I had the, the fortunate 
timing in my life that I started to work for leaders who were who were looking about looking at the future of the Border Patrol. And then unfortunately, after 9-11, you know, that future state and that planning and that preparation um, was very necessary because after 9-11, we all were, you know, we all had to take a breath and figure out how did that happen? How do we prevent it from happening and happening again? And it was quite clear to me that what we were doing on the border needed to change. Um, and that was the expectation of the American people. That was the expectation of the, of the administration at the time. And so many, many things changed in the Border Patrol. And so instead of becoming sort of a local can-do force for good, it became a national discussion about how we were going to control the border, what planning and resources were required. And so we set out on the path to make things better in every single way, both on the tactical uh, and information and training side, but also at the national level to build programs that were sustainable, uh, to give people confidence about security at the border. And I think we really did a good job. You know, we, we, we ha I was on the ground floor. I watched the department sort of create itself, right? The legislation put us all together and, and made CBP the single voice at the border. Um, but then it was the men and women and my colleagues at the headquarters that had to figure out how all those pieces fit together. And we really got much better at planning, sustainability and implementation, um, measuring things like you do in government. And so over the years and incrementally, I think they've refined those processes. Um, and so it's, it's much, it's, it's a much more capable force as it relates to technology and how we think about the future, uh, still a long way to go. I think on the border, we, we, we got a, a, a big boost in the Trump administration as it relates to what are the elements of border security? Like we, we, we tried to convince, you know, Congress to fund, you know, border infrastructure for many, many years. Um, there was legislation passed in 2006 called the Secure Fence Act. That was a large deployment of, of wall and fencing along the southwest border. Um, not perfect, not complete, but a good start. Um, and then, you know, it kind of bumped along, if you will, under the Obama administration where infrastructure wasn't a priority. Um, and, you know, things started to change. But then when, when the Trump administration came in, five days into the administration, CBP was, I was at the deputy commissioner's level, we were, CBP was handed uh, an executive order says you will go build wall, you will add agents, you will put technology yeah. on the border, and so that was that was every bit as big a change as 9/11, maybe a little bit more intense um, because it was you know you know th that president was very eager to control the border. He ran on you know putting a wall on the southwest border, and so we all set about taking the tools that we had learned previously um, and 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 try to implement in a way that was satisfying both for officer safety and improving border security, but also meeting the goals of, uh, you know, the, the administration. It's amazing to me how um, much prog progress the Trump administration made with so much resistance every step of the way, and then how quickly in this current administration, how quickly it's been just smashed. Yeah, it, 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 it very, very quickly, they dismantled all of the things that were working. You know, they, they suspended the wall construction, which was quite costly to the taxpayer um, and not good if you're an operator in the Border Patrol, right? Where you have wall, it's much more safer. It becomes an anchor for technology and access to the border in a way that doesn't exist in the wide open brush. And you, you don't need wall everywhere, but where you need it, you need it. Um, and yeah, and then the policy changes that occurred day one, of the current administration really decimated the control. I mean, they were handed a border that was not perfect. Uh, the policies weren't 
perfectly implemented, but the policies were working to abate the surge that occurred the year and a half before. Um, and then, you know, day one, they dismantled all of those things and really decimated the border. Right now in, in the history of that border, we've never seen the kind of traffic, the kind of activity and the kind of uh, surge of humanity uh, that we're seeing now. It's never been as bad as it is. Uh, you know, we're approaching one, two million uh, encounters last year, uh, the last fiscal year, which ends it, for the government ends September 31st. Um, and they're on pace to go well over two million uh, this year based on current activity. I mean, I, if you would have told me three or four years ago that entire sectors along the Southwest border, places like Yuma, Arizona and Del Rio, Texas, which where I was a couple of weeks ago, that they are unable to send agents to the border because they're so overwhelmed by the other duties that, that, that they're required to do, um, that if it's not an emergency, they don't send people to the line. Think about you know hundreds of miles of border where no agents exist at all. Um, it's really, really, uh, something I would never have contemplated previously in, in my work or in my career. Um, and it's very unfortunate because this was a choice. This was a choice that people made on the policy side and they knew fully well um, that this was gonna cause a surge. And we're seeing uh, countries and numbers of people from countries that we had not seen previously. And uh, it, it's really unfortunate because this really puts us all at risk. Um, they're enriching the cartels that are in Mexico they're enriching the corrupt governments uh, and, and corrupt politicians and police officers along that pipeline. They take advantage of the people that are in that pipeline. Uh, human traffickers are, are, you know, now have this huge surge of people, which they're obviously picking off uh, on the journey. Um, the drug smugglers take advantage because the Border Patrol is distracted. Uh, they're unable to patrol the border in ways that they could if they weren't as busy as they are now. Um, and, it, and it's really unfortunate. And think about the workforce. You know, in 2019, they were overwhelmed with activity. The Trump administration working with Mexico put in a place uh, the migrant protection protocols, effectively ending the surge um, before the election. Um, and then several days later, uh, all of that policy was reversed, causing the worst surge we've ever seen. And then the previous year we spent, you know, those, those agents spent the whole year worrying about COVID, uh, their own lives and livelihood. You know, imagine agents, you know, fully overwhelmed with the work that they do, uh, but yet having to go to work every single day and interact with people from all over the world. Uh, vaccination rates really low. Uh, COVID incidents amongst the workforce, let alone the populations that they're dealing with, very, very high. And then have to go back home to their families every day. Very, very stressful for them. And then now comes January 20th, 2021, now they're back in the middle of the worst surge they've ever seen. It's worse than the previous year, worse than anything that's ever been seen before that was called emergencies by Democrats and Republicans alike. Uh, but yet there's really no end in sight. You know, they've doubled down on the nonsense every single time that this administration has been able to set forth a policy about what happens in immigration enforcement or on the border. They've stepped back from the rule of law. They've told people if they're in the country that not to worry because ICE is not coming after you. They've put priorities in place that restrict ICE officers from encountering people, not not no. not merely arresting them or trying to remove them, but they can't encounter people if they don't fit in these discrete categories of risk. Um, and it's really unfortunate. It does not have to be this way. You know, people complained a lot about President Trump and his rhetoric on the border. And OK, maybe it wasn't perfect, uh, but none of the things that he asked the agencies to do were outside of the rule of law. As opposed to what's happening now in this administration, they're telling people that 
yeah, there's lots of illegal activity. There's lots of people who are in the country illegally, but we're going to tell ICE they're restricted from dealing with those illegal acts. And so that to me is inconsistent with the Immigration and Nationality Act. That's not the way the law works. Um, but, you know, given the circumstance and the margins in the House and the Senate, there is really nothing that's going to change until someone forces it to change either through legislation or through the ballot box. I mean, as an American citizen, I mean, I'm, I'm an, a citizen who pays taxes. I, my grandpa was an immigrant. He came from Lebanon the legal way. And, you know, I feel like what they're doing on the border or what this administration is doing is really impeding on my rights as a U.S. citizen and making my family more unsafe and unstable. And, you know, my family lives in, El, most of my family lives in El Paso. That's where I grew up. So we were a border city and it's just, it just blows my mind that in any universe, someone can think that this is okay. And I know that they're saying, you know, the rhetoric on the left is, you know, these are just people seeking a better life. Tell me about how, you know, what you see. They are not just people seeking a better life. It's not just that. It, it is also people who have criminal records, who people who are, are, you know, a danger to our society, a danger to, you know, the border communities, the danger to the cities that were, where, they, where they're going to try to settle in the United States. Um, and it's really unfortunate because the cartels know that the policy exists where all you have to do is make it on the other side of the river uh, in places like Laredo and parts of El Paso. Um, and if you bring your child with you or you're not a threat to public safety, you're likely to be released out of Border Patrol custody after a brief stay in the booking process. And those people are going all over the country. And, you know, unfortunately, some of them will settle in the worst neighborhoods in our country. Uh, and, and, and they'll be if, if they're not already criminally involved, they're very susceptible and vulnerable. Uh, you know, these young kids being recruited by gangs. When I was at ICE, um, and, and they, do, they still do a very good job against, you know, targeting MS-13 gang members, this, this vicious gang from El Salvador. Um, and so there's a concentrated effort to, you know, find those people in the States uh, and get them removed. And, you know, over some of the time frame I was there, you know, 3,500 convicted felons arrested during the time I was ICE director. That's a lot of people and not criminally convicted of crossing the border illegally. That, that is a crime and it, it is a federal crime and many people are convicted for it. Uh, but these were people that did mayhem. They, they sold drugs, they killed other people. Um, you know, they assaulted, they robbed, they raped. They did all the kinds of things uh, that criminals do. Um, and fully half of that 3,500 were people who came to the United States as minor children. You know, so our law, you know, the way it's constructed, the way things work, if people come alone uh, under 17 as juveniles, they're treated very specifically under law. Most of them are released to family in the United States, sometimes to foster care. Um, but in either case, you know, they fled places like El Salvador, other parts of the world to get away from gang violence and, and endemic corruption um, and terrible condition, living conditions. But yet they came to neighborhoods in the United States. Uh, and were recruited by this very same gangs that destabilized their country, forcing them to flee. Uh, and then they got caught up in the criminal enterprises and, and, and did terrible things. And so it's not always good for the people that are in the pipeline. Yeah, it's true that many people are coming for a better life. But if we keep giving away the sovereignty of our border, if we keep giving away, you know, the rule of law, and we tell people, yeah, it's okay to come here just if you want to work hard and be that 
yeah, we, we have a very generous legal immigration system in this country. Uh, we should promote that. But we cannot continue to allow large numbers of people to just walk across the border, be released in the United States, and then pretend it doesn't matter that they're here. Because that's a draw on resources. That's a draw on our schools and our hospitals and our public health systems. And so we can't continue to do that and then pretend or, or act like we want to control the border because that, that's an inconsistent message that we're sending across the globe. And, and over time, it puts us all at risk. Absolutely. Um, earlier, you said that, you know, you would see miles of border without agents. When I think of a border patrol agent, especially coming from El Paso and making drives to different places, I would always see border patrol agents at, you know, they were just parked in their car every, I don't know how many miles, but they were there. It was a presence. And you said that um, it got to a point where they were busy doing their other duties that they weren't able to man the border. I thought border patrol agents were there to man the border. So what are these other duties that they were stuck doing? So they're forced in places like Del Rio and, and, and Yuma, Arizona, when the infrastructure is not adequate for them to take these large numbers of families and children and other people into custody. Oh um, th those people have to be put through the system. They have to be booked in. Uh, they have to be assigned you know, to be on the docket. And eventually, many of them are, are being released. Um, and so to get the, the hundreds and thousands of people that are in custody out of Border Patrol facilities, they pull people off the line uh, to do the care, comfort, and the, what we call processing, the book-in procedure. Um, and so they're covered up doing all of those things um, and that leaves the border unattended. And, and, and believe you me that the cartels know exactly how this works. They, they fully take advantage um, and bring in contraband like fentanyl and methamphetamine and other hard drugs uh, into the United States because they know the border patrol is not there to stop them. And yeah, it's, it's very unfortunate. Um, when you have chaos like that on the border, again, it puts us all at risk, not just because of the chaos on the border, but because the other things that are not addressed while the border patrol is distracted doing these other missions. It's not that they want to do that, right? Most men and women that go into the border patrol, they go in because they want to protect us. They want to help us. They want to secure the border. They want to arrest cartel members and drug smugglers. Uh, they do not necessarily want to sit in the station all day uh, and book people in so they can alleviate the strain and stress on those facilities. Uh, and imagine that, you know, the public health risks that they face in that setting. Thousands and thousands of people from all over the world, uh, very low vaccination rates, um, and yet they're forced to be in that setting until they can get people from A to B, get them you know, from custody into whatever their final disposition. And unfortunately, that disposition in many cases is a release into the United States, either under safeguards or not. It's, it's still in, you know, when, when, the, when people come and they're released at the border after they're arrested, um, that encourages more people to come. Um, that's the pattern. You know, the department's only 20, just barely 19, 20 years old. Um, they've effectively ended three surges at the border, 2007, 2014, uh, and 2020 uh, under the Trump administration. And so we know that this works. We know how to end these surges. Um, but yet you can see that there's no willingness uh, for the current leadership to do that. And it's really unfortunate because the tools are there. They just have to choose to use them. When you say low vaccination rates, are you talking specifically about COVID or are you just talking in general? Yeah, in the COVID scenario, right? During the pandemic, uh, you know, these men and women had to go, all first responders, including Border Patrol and CBP officers, they had to go to work every day. Um, you know, they, they don't have an opportunity to do their work 
uh, you know, on, on Zoom or Google Meet or whatever, whatever format, you know, Microsoft Teams, um, they have to go. They have to go and be in, in those settings, you know, to try to, to try to protect that border, to try to help us. And um, imagine the stress that it causes, uh, especially during the, the beginning days of this pandemic. Nobody really knew what, you know, what the real risks were and how contagious things were and when the vaccines were going to be here. And so, you know, they've had a very stressful last couple of years. So I lean more on the, if you want to get a vaccination, that's your choice. Um, I'm not, I'm personally not vaccinated. I don't plan to get vaccinated. Um, but I think if people want to, then they should have that option. We're, it's a little different when we're talking about people coming illegally over our border. Um, I heard, and I don't know, maybe you can verify this, that they're not even like, they're not even testing the people that come across the border. Yeah, it's a very difficult situation. Um, again, agents are trained and operate in all sorts of dynamic situations. They can do, just, you know, you can get a border patrol agent to do just about anything. If, you know, you, you ask them to solve a problem for you, and they're very, very good at, you know, adapting to whatever the the, the workforce needs or whatever the the, the mission demands. Um, but they're not doctors, <clears throat> they're not healthcare professionals, and so. They, they know how to screen people. They've gotten better at you know, medical care and putting medical professionals in the system there. But there is no apparatus available to them now to get people vaccinated or get them tested. And so what happens, and it's not just for COVID, it's for all other you know, maladies that people suffer uh, in that dangerous journey to and, and mm -hmm. from the border. Um, if they show right. symptoms, then, then they refer them to local health care. Uh, they refer them to doctors. And so there's, there's not a mechanism in place that allows people to be treated while they're in custody uh, or vaccinated while they're in custody. It's a very complicated set of logistics and, and you don't really want more people to wait around in border patrol stations. It's not a place for families and children. And so, yeah, they've been struggling for quite some time with this issue. Um, and, you know, like I said, in, in, during the height of the pandemic, they, you know, they were forced to deal with that situation the best that they could. Um, and then now this chaos you know, breeds even more difficulty on the logistics side because there's not enough nurses, there's not enough doctors to send to, you know, border patrol facilities to screen and adjust for, for folks. And then, you know, the whole vaccine situation, um, you know, they're just not equipped to do that in that setting. It's just not made for that. I just, I think about how now they're, they have those rules in place where if you, if you're an American citizen and you travel outside of the country in order to get back into your own country, they make you get tested yet yeah. you have illegal immigrants coming and there's they don't they don't care they're just like come on in let us pay for your school and let us give you medical care and you know it is it it's it makes zero sense to anyone who loves the sovereignty of our nation yeah it, it's a very inconsistent policy on the one hand they're saying you know, if you follow the rules and you stand in line and you wait your turn, you know, you're going to have to do these things, including vaccination. Same, same with the employees, right? By the, just because you're an employee of the government, you, you are mandated to get a vaccination. Yet we have hundreds and thousands of people. You know, the, the seven-day average last week was 7,000. 7,000 people in a 24-hour period every night coming into the border for an entire week. And not, no review of their vaccination status, no requirement that they be vaccinated, right? They come in uh, basically on their terms, actually on the terms of the cartel. Um, and our agents and officers are forced to deal with that. Um, 
and, and again, it's an inconsistent policy that says, you know, if you follow the rules, you, you know, here are the mandates. Um, but if you don't, well, we're going to make it work for you anyway. We're going to, we're going to take you into custody and we're going to, we're going to mostly release you into the United States, depending on the, on the conditions that are people that people are in. And then one of the things we haven't talked about is that because the border patrol is so distracted, you know, many people come to that border cross illegally and they're never encountered, right? There's lots of people, what the border patrol call gotaways. There's a lot of that in this population, right? So if we did 1.7 uh, million in the last fiscal year, how many people came to the border and were never encountered by Border Patrol? Uh, so those numbers are unbelievably high as well. And again, that just adds to the risk factor because we know within those populations that are people who are coming here to prey on others. You know, they're, they're involved in human trafficking, they're smuggling marijuana, cocaine, methamphetamine, fentanyl. We know they're involved in, in other crimes and, and criminal activity. Um, it's not everybody, obviously, but it's enough of it to put us all at risk. Absolutely. We just broke ground yesterday on a 100 bed. Um, next time you're in town, we'll get you over there. I would love for you to come see it. But we broke ground on a 100 bed facility to for women who've been rescued out of human trafficking. It's long term residences. It's going to be the largest in the country. And we did that here in Fort Worth, uh, Texas, and it's going to be amazing. But um, there has to you know, there's never going to be enough beds if the problem keeps having windows and doors to happen. Um, one of the things that you said earlier uh, when we talked on the phone a couple week, a week ago or so, uh, you said that you want to be able to be a voice to say the things that you weren't able to say when you were actually in government. And I think you've probably already shared a lot of those things today, but what? give me something else that you absolutely could not have said as a government official, where now you as a private citizen have, have freedom? Well, the, the incentives are all wrong, right? You know, they have no, um, no initiative to, to control this border, right? The leadership changed all of the policies that were working and none of the leaders that have been involved in this conversation um, have said, like, we need, to, we need policies that work at our border. We need policies that protect us. We need policies that control the border. We got to stop this lawlessness at the Southwest border. They haven't said a thing about it. Um, and in fact, in the early days of the surge, you know, they were dishonest about it. Oh, it's seasonal. It's, this will go away. Mm -hmm. We inherited a broken system. That, none of that is true. But yet you're not going to hear the leadership, uh, especially in the Border Patrol, my former colleagues, you know, they're not able to talk. No. In, in terms that say, hey, look, we know we can solve this problem. We just need to let the, the administration lets us need, needs to let us implement the previous policies or some other creative policy that will close the loop on this illegal flow. You know, you continue to release people at the border that just continues to encourage more. Uh, and they can't say that now. And so to the extent that I'm able, I, I wanna get out there and speak for them. This was true also under the Obama administration. We were, it was very, very little opportunity uh, to talk to the public or to talk to the workforce in ways that were specific uh, and, and, you know, that sort of pushed back on some of the policies that we knew were encouraging, that was encouraging illegal activity at the border. And so they're sort of in that situation now, you know, they, they can't speak freely in the media because it's inconsistent with the policies of this administration. And so, you know, they're in a tough spot. And, and when I, I, I can help them, I try to do that. They would would they get fired or would they just, is there some? Yeah, so I, I can't forecast what would happen if, 
But you can see what happened to the previous chief of the Border Patrol. Raul took over. Raul Ortiz, who's the current chief of the Border Patrol, took off, took over for Rodney Scott. Um, and the story that I get is when when Rodney became chief, and then this administration changed over. Um, he was very generous with his time. He told the administration where he wanted to be, um, and he pushed back on some of the things that he thought was a bad idea. Um, and they basically tried to reassign him out from being. Uh, the chief of the border patrol and and you know some some lesser job all the jobs in the in the border patrol are important but when you're the chief and they want to send you out to do something else you know that's not flattering and why did they do that well they did that because they knew he was going to be difficult when they made bad decisions and they doubled down on the nonsense he was going to push back um and that was unacceptable and so chief ortiz is in the same situation if he pushes back on the nonsense in a public way um he's probably not long for that job yeah, they um I call I call them the Beijing Biden administration just because of all of that. But the Beijing Biden administration has no desire to um for America to be great. Um I've I've seen the, you know, from Obama to Biden, I've seen them do things basically to turn us into a third world country. I mean, it's that's where we're headed. Yeah. Yeah. This, the signs are out there during the Obama administration. They did the so-called, you know, the DACA implementation, mm -hmm. right? That the, the mm -hmm. secretary with the president's assent wrote a memo that said, hey, if you fall into this category, you came as a child, you don't have a criminal record, et cetera, et cetera. You know, they took a class of people who were in the country illegally and say, you know what, we're going to make them legal. We're going to keep them from ever being deported. Um, and so that sent a signal to other folks that said, hey, like if you come with your child, you know, maybe maybe the government will do that for us in the future at some point, right? This is the same thing. You know, when people advocate for amnesty, we're just going to snap a line and say, everybody that's here now, we're going to give them legalization. You think that's going to stop more people from coming? No, it's the complete opposite. So during the Obama administration, they rewrote immigration law effectively. Then they tried to do it again. They, they First, they wanted to legalize all the children who came through no fault of their own, quote unquote. Um, and then they wanted to legalize all their parents, the people who actually made a deliberate decision to come to the country illegally with children. Um, that one got, right, and, they, and that one got turned around in the courts because it is illegal to, to be in the country in that situation. Uh, this administration comes in, they're handed policies that's you know, stemming a surge at the border with the migrant protection protocols. And day one, they restrict implementation of the migrant protection protocols. And then they take the tens of thousands of people who are enrolled in the program and they let them all come into the United States. Um, so very, very, obvious what, what's going on right they're they're incentivizing people to come here illegally because there's no consequence if you come here illegally especially if you have a child or you're in that situation you're released at the border what are you going to do you're going to call home and ask for your cousins your aunts your uncles your friends and neighbors to follow your footsteps because they're not there's no consequence um and so that signal is out that's what we're seeing here and every single chance they've gotten to say hey we're going to fix this hey we're going to do things you know to strengthen the rule of law to have an immigration system that has integrity they don't do it they double down on the nonsense uh and they step back from the rule of law and they tell people hey if you're here illegally um or if you bring your child to the border we're just gonna we're just gonna let you come in um effectively that's what's happening now now they talk about how people are under DACA control and they're eventually they're going to see an immigration judge the history on that is very, very spotty. If you're in a place like Phoenix or Los Angeles, it'll be years before your hearing even gets on the calendar to see the judge. Um, and many people, many, many people will never attempt to exercise their due process rights in immigration court. They just stay in, on the economy, underground, 
um, and and hopefully hopefully they will, they you know they won't be encountered by you know immigration officers and, and typically they won't be unless they commit crimes under a previous administration or, or a subsequent administration because because right now this this administration it says unless you're a threat to public safety in the terrorism sense a convicted aggravated felon that's a very high bar um, or you just cross the border illegally and I don't know how you figure that out in the middle of some place like Houston or El Paso um, that. ICE is prohibited from encountering you. They're prohibited from even asking you questions or approaching you uh, in public space. And so, you know, the, the signal's out. Um, you're, you're not going to control the border under those conditions with tens of thousands more agents. If you have this kind of flow each and every day, uh, it is not possible with the current resources to stop. You've got to work on the flow. You know, they want to talk about root causes. The root cause of the current surge is policy. Um, you know, there's things we can do in the third world. There's things that we can do in the Northern Triangle and with Mexico to help improve conditions in those countries. But that's going to take decades um, before that bears fruit. In the meantime, we need to control the border. Um, and unfortunately, I don't see any steps in that direction from this group. It's very unfortunate. And um, kind of like what happened with nursing, I predict that it's going to happen with Border Patrol where fewer border patrol fewer people choose the border patrol as their line of work and then when it's time to need them we won't have them or we do need yeah. them. but when it's time for it to actually be allowed for them to do their job we won't have agents it's it's very unfortunate um that, that's a shrinking workforce you know when, when the when the democrats took over the house in 2018 um they're, they're starving the hiring you know they're not putting resources in between the ports of entry you know they resisted wall money for the for the president if he didn't use the national securities act or uh, National Emergencies Act, if he didn't do that, we wouldn't have the wall that's out there now. Um, and yeah, it's unfortunate because last year they had more retirements in the Border Patrol than they, in one single year than they had in the history of the whole outfit, uh, which, is, which is about 97 years old. And so, yeah, it, 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 they're not encouraging people. Um, they're not putting the tools in place for them to succeed. Um, and that's gonna cost, that's gonna cost in morale. That's going to cost in people, you know, leaving the workforce when they're eligible, uh, taking other jobs and, and retiring more when they're eligible instead of when they really want to go. You know, that, why would they want to participate in this nonsense? It's not going to get any better um, short term. Right. Well, it's been an absolute honor um, to get to have you on the Defending Freedom podcast. Do you have any last anything last words that you'd like to say before we wrap it up and i do want to have you on again you know as as we see things happen you'll you'll come on again and we'll talk about them but um i want to see if you have anything else yeah so I, I would just like to say you know i've had the benefit i told you i was blessed with having a family that supported my career throughout the entire 34 years and so i'm very grateful for that and i want your audience your listeners and folks to know that there's a bunch of men and women out there that are working every single day, you know, first responders, all of our, you know, EMTs and Border Patrol and Customs and Border Protection officers, they're out there plugging away. They're out there every single day trying to do the best that they can. Um, they're suffering under a lot of stress. And so I'd like, I'd like for us, you know, as a community to kind of reach out when you can, if you're in a border community, you know, give them a thumbs up, tell them you care about what they do, uh, and say a prayer for them and their families because, you know, they are among the best of us. And uh, I, I want your, your, your team to know that um, and we need to support them because they're in a very difficult situation. Absolutely. Thank you so much uh, for being here. Um, you have a great rest of your day. And next time that you and Nuri are in town, I told her I want a phone call so that we can have a coffee or something. 
That would be great. Okay. Good to be with you. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for listening. Please leave a rating wherever you download podcasts and be sure to subscribe so you never miss a future episode of the Defending Freedom podcast.